So the amount of stimulus obviously is unprecedented. You know, we're we're talking about levels where, you know, the the meaning of money is almost meaningless. I mean, just, you know, hey, there's a problem here today. Let's just throw another trillion at it. You're about to hear my conversation with Matt Cardillo. We talked about alternative asset classes, how these alternative asset classes sometimes trade similarly, gold, REITs, monetary policy, and the possibility of inflation. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Matthew Cardillo. Matt is the lead portfolio manager of the McKenzie Diversified Alternatives Fund. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Let's get started with how you uh, got interested in investment management. Sure. So I've actually been interested in the markets for a long time. Uh, My father was a retail stockbroker during the go-go 80s. Uh, it was quite interesting that you know a lot of the stuff he was involved in, I got involved in as myself later in my career. But I remember him reading the stock pages as a kid. I remember being interested in these the information that was contained on the stock page. You know, people that are listening to this podcast, if they're under the age of thirty, they probably won't really know what a stock page was. But there used to be the actual quotes the stock quotes published in the newspaper every every day right. you know after the yeah. fact and, and you could see and they would they would have the movements not in decimals but they would have them in fractions you know quoted as eighths and i thought all of that was very interesting it was like a world unto itself so i was interested in markets you know going back to my early childhood given my my father's profession and then um, i i studied economics at university And after university, I worked for the Federal Reserve System in the United States, uh, the U.S. Central Bank. And there, you know, my my fascination and interest in markets only grew because, you know, as you know, there is there is a strong link between monetary policy and the markets and movements therein. So I've always been interested. I got into them. You know, I, I, I was in economics first. I was in an economic research position at the Fed, loved that, made the transition to finance and asset management after the Fed, and this was purposeful. I wanted to do this. I I love economics as a field. I love the science of economics. However, uh, one of the things that is, it's just a, a fact about economics is, you know, the the effect of your policy decision is very lagged. You know, you make a decision today about, say, interest rates, and the effect on the economy is, is much further down the road. So I, right. I, I mean, I'm not in – well, maybe my wife would say I'm a very impatient person. Perhaps I am. I don't consider myself an impatient person. But I was looking for a more immediate feedback loop, so to speak. And so that, uh, that, you know, I was already interested in markets. That brought me closer to markets. You know, markets are an area where you get feedback on your decision, your idea, almost instantaneously. 
And so sure. that, that was quite a thing. And so that just brought me, you know, ever closer to markets. And so once I left the Fed, I ended up going to graduate school, studying mathematics. Every decision okay. I made uh, about the graduate program, the field, and my internship within my, my grad school years was about positioning myself for a asset management, investment management role. And I, I was successful in doing that. After I graduated from graduate school, was graduated from graduate school, I worked for one of the largest asset management companies in the world. They still are one of the biggest. It's State Street Global Advisors out of Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, and so, yeah, I began my career there as a, you know, a junior investment management person uh, on a quant equity team. So uh, very, very interesting, you know. Lots to talk yeah. about, about, you know, what, what happened when I was so, there, obviously the global financial crisis hit when I was at the fed, you know, there was the tech bubble bursting, there was nine 11. So, you know, there've been a lot of interesting times to learn from and gain experience from in my career already. And they continue with what's happening today. Yeah, it's funny how uh, careers are defined by crises. Um, I, you hear frequently about people uh, starting in their early career uh, in '87 or or 2001 tech wreck, but it always seems that uh, that people highlight their career and in, uh, in crises uh, like we are in uh, one now. Um, I, I did want to circle back a little bit to your Fed experience. Um, so you mentioned you were there in 2001 uh, during the the tech wreck in 9/11. Uh, what was that like? What did you What did you do there, and uh, and what did you What do you think you took with you from that experience that you still hold today? So the role I inhabited at the Fed, I was a junior economic researcher. They actually have armies of this role in the Federal Reserve System. Every district bank has research analysts. The Board of Governors in Washington, D.C. has research analysts. So there's a there's a big group of these people all throughout the United States. I was one of these people. The role of a research analyst at the Fed is to work on helping the senior economist that you would often be paired with on their academic research program. Senior economists at the Fed all maintain, you know, uh, active academic research programs in addition to doing their policy research functions. So you would assist your senior economist with his or her academic research program, as well as work on policy research questions that came up in the course of conducting monetary policy for the United States. And so my, my role was twofold. I did both of those things, you know, worked on the academic research program of my economist who incidentally now I'm an American living in Canada. She was a Canadian living in the United States and she has since returned to the bank of Canada. So she's, she's back in Canada and I made that northward migration myself. It, it, kind of interesting, but uh, so yeah. worked on the academic research and also worked on the policy research. You know, the policy research obviously was the, you know, more prevalent, more important function of the feds mission and so there was, you know, the, obviously the tech rec, like you mentioned, had to do a lot of, you know, monetary policy analysis. Rates were lowered during that time to sure. cushion the economy during that contraction economic activity. Same thing around 9-11. So, you know, those policy questions of the day, a lot of talk at the time 
that I was at the Fed was, you know, how do you conduct monetary policy when you're near getting near the zero bound? Now, obviously, they didn't get as close to that zero bound as they have today or as they did in the global financial crisis. But, you know, there was a lot of talk about, you know, what other quivers are sorry, what other arrows exist in the Fed's quiver when that policy rate can't really go any lower? And so that was very interesting. That's one of the main things I took away from that time. And, you know, a lot of those things that were talked about were actually those arrows were used just say seven years later in the global financial crisis. And so that was, that was very interesting to have seen how those ideas were already being talked about, how the, you know, the, that's interesting. The consensus around them was being formed, et cetera. And, uh, you know, just those theories, those theories, how, how, you know, they, they were being talked about then, but tested later and again, tested today. So that was one thing I took away. Uh, another thing that I took away is, is that, uh, you know, the Fed has a very important role in the US economy, obviously, but I would say it's beyond that. They have a very important role in the global economy, given how much of an engine in the global economy, the US economy is. And uh, I've always been very impressed with the Fed, uh, the, the way that the employees of the Fed conduct themselves, their, you know, their importance in taking, they, they hold this mission very sacred and they're very serious about uh, doing the best they can. And that would be another thing I took away amongst you know, many other things. Of course, um, I'm sure it was a, a very fulsome experience um, and uh, it happening uh, early in your career, uh, probably fairly foundational as well. Wanted to move to um, your your time at State Street. Um, uh, I understand that when you were there, you did end up managing a couple of portfolios. Uh, walk me through what you managed there and uh, and particularly the the global Lovo that uh, that you managed. Uh, how you how you thought about that product um, and uh, and what your role was there? Yep, certainly. So I, I managed a bunch of you know long only and some short extension strategies in various geographies around the world. You know, U.S., North American, global, etc. In various capitalization spectrums. So you know, small cap mid cap, large cap, all cap, et cetera. And this, this was the main function that I performed was, you know, to be a portfolio manager on these separately managed accounts. SSGA has a institutional client base as opposed to a retail client base. So there's a smaller mutual fund business at SSGA versus, you know, the separately managed account business. So managing, you know, those, those quantitatively oriented equity funds, in those various geographies and cap spectrums was the main thing I did. One of the things I'm most proud of was in 2008, in the midst of the global financial crisis, I actually launched with the head of my team, a global low vol equity product. And so, uh, you know, much like work I've done at McKenzie, you know, the work that undergirds the McKenzie Diversified Alternatives Fund, the work that undergirds, you know, future product that I will be launching. We noticed in our in our data analysis, the low vol or low beta anomaly. And we are certainly not the first people to have noticed this. You know, the actual anomaly, the person that gets the credit for discovering this is a gentleman named Robert Haugen back in the 70s, I believe. 
And so this low vol, low beta anomaly, you know, the financial theory would say that since there's less risk in low vol, low beta names, the return should be less as well. But if you look at the actual realized returns to low vol, low vol, low beta versus high vol, high beta, you see that low vol outperforms. We noticed that uh, this has continued. I mean, it's even the case this year where low vol right. is beating, you know, traditional cap weighted benchmarks. It's beating, you know, stuff that's considered high volatility. So we we noticed this anomaly in doing some data analysis, and we wanted to launch a product that would take advantage of that. And the product that took form was a global low vol equity strategy. And believe it or not, we launched in the September, October timeframe and wow. immediately right out of the gate, you know, these, these theories were, were proven efficacious. And so that's, that, mm -hmm. that's interesting. I talked about, you know, the, the condensed feedback loop. There you go. There you, it was, you know, right. we launched, we had this idea and it was immediate market gratification. This, this idea worked. And so I would say that the, the work that we did at SSGA probably encompasses the second wave in you know the low vol equity craze, uh, that craze I think we're now well into a third wave. It continues. Low vol product is is uh, you know part and parcel and a staple at a lot of investment management companies around the world. And there's always this question about when will it end? You know, nobody thinks it will continue. Yet it does. It does. And you know, uh, I, I think it will end. Obviously, when. All these things reach their end. It's when valuations just become too stretched and you hit that valuation right. wall. And that's, that's right. when it will not work. Almost like a nifty 50s type environment, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, anyway, let's move to, uh, to you joining McKenzie. Uh, so when did, when did you join McKenzie and what prompted you to, to come up north? So I joined McKenzie in the fall of 2012, and what prompted this was, you know, I, I'm working in Boston, I'm an American, but, you know, I would consider myself a fairly adventurous sort. You know, I've always been okay. a skier, you know, I've been a backcountry skier. I've, you know, even when I was a kid, I, I had a bit of an adventurous streak, and, you know, I wouldn't say that Canada is the most adventurous, inter most adventureful international experience that an American can get, but it's still, in, you know, it's a different country and it sure. is international experience. And I, I was interested in doing that. And so when the opportunity arose to come to McKenzie and come up to Canada from Boston, uh, I took it and it, uh, it's been great. I made a great, great decision. I've enjoyed living in Canada. You know, it's very culturally culturally similar to the United States. You know, a lot of people say, hey, Canada, the 51st state. Uh, there's aspects of truth to that. Culturally, yes, not a big uh, change for an American, but there are differences. And so, you know, I've, I've enjoyed learning about those differences. I've enjoyed being in Canada. Toronto's a great city. Uh, you know, the, I, yeah, Mackenzie has been a great fit for me. I, I like the entrepreneurial nature of the company. And, you know, one of the things I enjoy a lot is the, the product creation and product development. I've been very involved in that. So it's, it's yep. really worked out quite well. 
Let's turn to Producto a little bit. Uh, as we've uh, referenced a couple of times, you're the lead manager of the McKenzie Diversified Alternatives Fund. Um, I, I am really looking forward to diving into how you think about that product uh, and how you approach it. I think it's important just to set the stage. What are the overall goals of that product? Uh, so maybe we can start there and then transition to to how you think about achieving those goals. Yeah. So just like with Global Lowball, you know, we did some analysis, we noticed something and we wanted to provide a solution. Same thing with the McKenzie Diversified Alternatives Fund. First thing we noticed was that Canadians love balanced funds. I mean, this is a fact. In our business, there's about $1.4 trillion, I believe, in, in managed assets. And over half of that, close to 60%, are in a balanced fund type form. So Canadians love balanced funds, which means that Canadians are heavily exposed to traditional equities and traditional bonds. So we wanted to bring to the masses, bring to Canadian retail investors, access to these other less utilized non-traditional asset classes in a way that will benefit their overall investment experience. So there, you know, you can think of the smart money, you know, quote, smart unquote money that's been doing this for a long time. You can, you know, reference, say, the sophisticated university endowments out of the United States. You know, you can think about David Swenson, Yale, Yale University Endowment. Uh, they were big proponents of this. Sovereign wealth funds all over the globe using, you know, real assets, using these these other areas to meet their savings goals, their return goals. And so, you know, we wanted to bring that solution to Canadian investors and we set about building a mutual fund structure that would allow us to do so. And so very similar there where, you know, notice something in the data and then bringing a solution to the market. Right. And uh, just to, to level set, because it is a mutual fund structure and this this uh, has been around for some time, uh, we're talking about a long only uh, strategy uh, reliant on sort of publicly listed or um, uh, diversified asset classes, but less so into the actual infrastructure in real estate. Is that is that a fair um, characterization? Yeah, it is fair. So I would say mostly long only. All Canadian mutual funds can short to some degree. It's obviously a bit onerous given the cash cover requirements in your regular Canadian mutual funds. So mostly right. long only, and then mostly publicly listed. Again, Canadian mutual funds can hold up to 10%. They can buy right. up to 10% in illiquid or private securities. We actually use that to its fullest in MDAF because if you think about, you know, what are the most divert, you know, what are the most exotic, most diversifying, if we think about a zero correlation, you know, most uh, unheld by Canadian investors, it is often those private asset classes. And so we do sure. utilize that to the fullest. But yes, you so are, your characterization is, is, is apt, you know, mostly long only, mostly publicly listed. Great. So it sounds like the goal then is really to provide a diversification of different asset classes that aren't available in the traditional uh, balance fund in Canada. Fair enough? 
Yeah, that would be the first level. That's what we're looking to do at its at its most general core. However, you know, the, you can go down a level from there. So obviously, mm-hmm. advisors can do this on their own. They can pick one or two of those. They can get in and out of them. We wanted to provide a diversified exposure to the alts themselves. So, you know, it's these asset classes diversify traditional equities, traditional bonds, but we wanted to give you a divert, you know, give Canadian investors a diversified exposure to these liquid alts that can do these things. So it's not just a real estate fund. It's not just an infrastructure fund. It's not just a credit fund. This is, you know, a, a, a swath of non-traditional asset classes and we want to assemble them. So that would be a second level. You know, it's a diversified approach to alternatives. And then on a third right. level, we wanted to, we wanted to assemble these alternative asset classes in a diverse way, but also in a way that benefits the overall investment experience. And so there's three levels to what we were trying to bring. So, you know, diversification by asset classes at level one, diversified alternatives at level two, and then level three, diversified alternatives in a way that benefits the overall investment experience. And so there in that third level, we care a lot about sharp ratio. So sharp ratio is, you know, return over risk, the higher, the better you know, more efficient portfolio, you're getting more return per unit of risk taken. And so we wanted to assemble these alternative asset classes in a way that it, it generally generates a high sharp ratio portfolio with that diversification. And that diversification would be measured by a lowered correlation of the return of the McKenzie Diversified Alternatives Fund to the return of your traditional global balance funds. Makes sense. Um, so you've laid out that goal. How do you think about uh, approaching to to achieve that goal? So we've actually built a simple, explicit model that encapsulates that goal right there in the function that we are working with. So uh, we have a model. It's a, it's not a model that should scare anybody. It's not a black box. Sure. It's supremely simple. It's really just an optimization function where we're optimizing over weight space, expected sharp ratio, so return over risk, and then subtracting off correlation, so minimizing correlation. So if we manage, if right. we maximize that, you know, we should be getting hopefully a high sharp ratio portfolio with that lowered correlation to the return of a global balance fund. And you know, MDAF has been around. You mentioned this; it's been around for four and a half years now. It'll be five right. years this fall. So it has been around a while. It actually predates alternative mutual funds in Canada. And, you know, for most of its five years, it has been consistently doing that. It has been consistently throwing off these high sharp ratio portfolios with lowered correlation to the 60-40. And is it it simply that you're relying on that uh, optimization in order to choose the the asset classes or – or how much uh, involvement do you have uh, once that model has been developed as it has been? So we do rely on the model for the final allocation. However, okay. we, do, we, we do get our, our views into the model. And so that would be in the input stage. So I talked about the function that we actually optimize, that we maximize. Uh, the I mentioned the three elements or the three characteristics for asset classes that are in that function. We've got return, we have risk, and we have correlation. 
And so in the okay. input stage, we form these, these numbers that go in for return risk and correlation. And so that is where we do get our views in. We don't take the allocations after the maximization process has been run and you know make the changes there and get our views in that way. We take that as given, the, the allocation is given. Our views are actually in the input stage. And so a good analogy here, well, I'll just talk about how the inputs are formed. And I'll use a good analogy using gold. So the inputs Great. are a mix of what has been happening recently with these asset classes, you know, kind of like a, a level setting exercise, a baseline, a foundation for what can be expected from these asset classes based on what they've done historically. So that's the backwards looking past return, past risk and past correlation. And then what we do is okay. we adjust that. We adjust those past returns, those past risks and past correlations up or down based on our view of the current macroeconomic environment. And so here I'll move to the analogy using gold. So, you know, a good and simple way to illustrate this process is to consider, let's say gold has done well the past, say, 12 months. It's up 6%. Sure. However, we're now at a time here at time T where we think the Federal Reserve in the United States is going to raise interest rates. Now, we do not think this. This is a, you know, comp a completely hypothetical exercise. So we're now here at time T. Gold has done well but the Fed is going to raise interest rates. What happens when the Fed raises interest rates is often it's good for the U.S. dollar. It will cause the U.S. dollar to, ri US dollar to rise. When the U.S. dollar rises, often gold will fall. So we would not let a plus 6% return number go into the optimization for the return on gold. We would adjust it down based on our view that interest rates were going to rise in the United States and the dollar was going to rise as well. So we would change that plus six on gold's return to, you know, maybe a zero, maybe a minus two, maybe a minus four. It would depend on how strong the reaction of the U.S. dollar to the interest rate rise right. would be or how, how big that rise in U.S. interest rates would be. So that's the exercise that we do in forming the inputs. So we do that for all of the asset classes that we consider for investment in MDAF, and we do it for all three of those dimensions. We do it for the returns, the volatilities, and the correlations. And so it's that. And how many asset classes are you covering? So it's, I actually counted, there's 46. So 46 entities that have these inputs going into the optimization stage. So Matt, 46 asset classes, that's a fair amount to handle. Uh, I'm curious, how many of those asset classes trade with uh, fairly high degrees of correlation? Um, and then maybe as a second uh, piece to that, you, you mentioned that you input risk, return, and correlation as the three functions for those asset classes. Um, how easy is it to predict those three uh, individual pieces, and you find that some are, uh, are more predictable than others? Certainly. So the first part of your question, Matt, I'll, I'll talk about that. So as human beings, we crave simplicity. You know, I, you can think about a lot of techniques that are done in mathematics to simplify a problem through dimension reduction. You can think about, you know, humans using a linear model 
to model something sure. that you know, in a linear model is easier to work with. So that simplicity is, is, is coveted. They use a linear model. So humans like simplicity. We're no different. We do the same thing in the investment process for the McKenzie Diversified Alternatives Fund. So you mentioned that there are 46 individual asset classes as we've defined them that have inputs going into the optimization stage. And yeah, we do simplify further from there. Uh, one of the things we do, which you alluded to in your question, was we do group, we aggregate. Um, you know, some of these asset classes, they behave similarly to other asset classes when, you know, some macro effect happens. You can think about precious metals. We'll talk about the commodity spectrum. You can think about precious metals, you know, precious metals, gold and silver will often behave similarly when interest rates rise or fall. There obviously are micro effects that make the return of silver differ a bit from the return of gold, but there is an overarching higher effect, you know, a stronger effect uh, that allows the aggregation to occur. Same thing within the commodity space. You can think about base metals, industrial metals, so metals that are used in the production of goods. Iron ore, copper, you know, these will often go up or down in the same way when, you know, economies contract, you know, global economy contracts, expands, et cetera. Makes sense. Uh, they have, yep. And I, you know, same thing on the non-traditional equity side, you know, a lot of the non-traditional equities that the McKenzie Diversified Alternatives Fund invests in are, you know, kind of bond proxy equities. So these are equities that have a yield. They are favored by yield-oriented investors. So they often are a proxy for bonds, which is why I call them bond proxy equities. And so they will often respond similarly when interest rates rise or fall. You can think about infrastructure equity here. You can think about public real estate equity here. On the non-traditional fixed income side, you can also make aggregations. A lot of non-traditional fixed income is driven by taking credit risk and the rewards to taking credit risk. So when credit spreads widen or fall, you know, this group will often act similarly. Now, I, I, I'm not saying that there aren't micro effects and we do think about those micro effects and it isn't necessarily the case that all precious metals, all base metals all get the same forecast, but it does help us in forming those forecasts. And so the second part of your question about which of these three characteristics or dimensions is the hardest to forecast, you know, I, I would say that the least hard, they're all hard, but the least hard to predict or forecast is volatility, future volatility. There is more persistence in volatility than the other two dimensions, the correlation and return. So it is often a good forecast of future volatility to use past volatility. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about oil here. So oil has, the price of oil has often been very volatile. Well, guess what? Today it remains volatile. In fact, it's probably more volatile than ever today. So there you go. Past is a good predictor of future. So yes, I would say that risk volatility is the least hard of the group to predict. I believe that the McKenzie Diversified Alternative Fund has done a good job in predicting future risk. The McKenzie Diversified Alternatives Fund has consistently had a lower risk profile than a traditional global balance fund. Moving up, you know, to the next 
characteristic or or dimension would be correlation. I think correlation is not as hard as returns, but sorry, not as hard as risk, but less hard than return to predict. And so it would be in the middle of these three. You know, there is some persistence in correlations, future correlations behaving a bit like past correlations, but it's not a, you know, you can think about March. They do change. They are dynamic. They, they move around. You can get relationships, uh, you know, being completely upended. March would be a good example here where a lot of non-traditional equity areas exhibited different behavior in March than they had in history. A lot of commodities exhibited a bit different behavior in March than they had in history. So I would, I would put correlation squarely in the middle. It's hard, not as hard as return, easier than risk. So return would be the most difficult of that group of three to predict. Uh, And I point to the existence of the global asset management industry as evidence of this. I mean, there's armies and armies of people that are employed in this very exercise, trying to predict security price returns in the future. And so, you know, it, it, if it employs this many people, it's got to be pretty difficult. So there you go. Sure. There, it, it is the most difficult of the group. So what I'm hearing, uh, Matt, and, and correct me if you if you wouldn't agree with this characterization, but it sounds like uh, with uh, the diversified alternatives fund, what you're really doing is almost a waterfall, where you have these uh, 46 asset classes that are driven by macro um, events in many cases, uh, but you bucket them up and you, you try to understand what macro events are gonna are going to impact these 46 different buckets. And then you take another step down and say, well, are there differences between these buckets? Um, And then at that point in time, you're able to input the sort of return risk correlation metrics and into your model and then come out with some sort of weights uh, that are attributed to that. Is that a fair characterization? It is. Yeah, I like the waterfall analogy a lot. Um, so we, you had talked about gold in the past, uh, Matt, uh, and you did it so, did so hypothetically. I'd love to give a tangible example of uh, what's going on in the portfolio to really bring it to life. So right now, I know that you have a large overweight uh, position in gold. Uh, take me through uh, the various levels. So the macro theme that's driving that position in gold, uh, how you've come up with gold out of all of the precious metal group that sort of trades as a bucket. And and then how you think about the return correlation in risk, given the current environment. Uh, happy to. We have bought gold up to 10% in the McKenzie Diversified Alternatives Fund. And so at this point, it's gold's price action that will have to take it higher. And so we are a little bit over 10%. In gold, because the price action for gold has been good, but we can't buy any more. And so what we've had to do is, because we still want exposure to gold, we like gold, and I'll get into that, but we've had to switch to a different exposure to gold. And so for that, we've been buying gold miner equity. Now, we had gold miner equity in the fund before, but we have upped that exposure, that allocation. So now today, the gold miner equity allocation is north of 4%. So if you add that to the commodity exposure, you know, we've got 14% in just raw exposure 
to gold or gold-linked things. However, if you think about the beta to the price of gold, it's true that gold miner equity often moves more than the price of gold itself. And so in beta terms, we're probably more exposed to the price of gold, price of gold than that 14% would suggest. And then, you know, what what makes gold something we like? Well, think about the process that we use. So there's that backwards look at, you know, what gold has done recently. Right. To, you know, serve as a foundation. Well, that backwards look has been good. You know, gold has been one of the better asset classes during this COVID-19 sparked sell-off. And so there you go. You've got that buttress, that foundation. And on top of that, you know, we believe that gold will continue to be one of the better asset classes going forward. And so our, our revisions haven't been, you know, downward. They've actually been a little bit upwards in what we expect for for gold going forward. And so that all leads to gold being one of the most favored assets in our allocation process. And the reasons macroeconomically why we like gold going forward, uh, let you know we've been using analogies throughout this conversation. We talked about a waterfall. Let me use a sure. football analogy. So you you know you American football, you've got a a fullback. A fullback is someone who lines up in the backfield and can actually serve two purposes. You know, that fullback can take the handoff and run up the middle or, you know, whatever, you know, run with the football, or that fullback can drop into, you know, coverage and, and block somebody, uh, you know, a, a rusher, a blitzer, sure. in order to allow the quarterback to make a pass to someone else. So I think gold actually has, you know, a bit of this fullback appeal to it. It, it can appeal from two different angles. It has two offensive and defensive capabilities to it. So number one, you know, gold is an asset class that does well when risk off sentiment prevails. And so if, you know, we do get a bigger contraction in, in, in economic activity than expected, we do have a repeat of something like the Great Depression. You know, gold will be one of the asset classes that people will use in that risk-off world. They will. Right. I don't mean use in you know <laughs> conducting economic activity with it, using it sure. as a medium of exchange. Although, if things got bad enough, you know that probably would happen. But I mean, you know, it's something that investors will turn to. And then, alternatively, even if we don't get a repeat of something like the Great Depression, you know, massive risk-off sentiment. Gold still has some offensive capabilities given the amount of stimulus that has been unleashed. So the amount of stimulus obviously is unprecedented. You know, we're we're talking about levels where, you know, the the meaning of money is almost meaningless. I mean, just, you know, hey, there's a problem here today, let's just throw another trillion at it. So at sure. that point, you know, these these fiat currencies this paper money, I mean, really, what is the meaning? What is the actual value of it if it just gets printed and thrown at all of the issues that are affecting, you know, the economies of the world today? You know, right. one of the things that money has to do is it has to be a store of value. Well, if the governments around the world just keep printing more and more of it, it really isn't a very good store of value, is it? So, you know, gold can serve that function. Gold has served that function historically. And so that's another thing that I think makes gold, you know, kind of a uh, maybe perhaps a no brainer investment in this in this current juncture. 
It's got the, you know, the defensive risk off element. It's got the store of value that helps with, you know, the, the, you know, massive money printing that is taking place. So that would, that's, uh, that makes perfect sense for the risk and return pieces of your model. How do you think about correlation uh, between gold and the, the rest of the alternative asset classes, which is that third component? So correlation to gold has changed a bit. So, you know, historically, gold has provided more negative correlation to the equity markets than it, than it did during this sell-off. Now, I would say the sell-off so far has been very short-lived. So I'm not yes. going to, you know, say that gold's correlation structure has wholesale changed because, again, it's so short. And as we get longer into the COVID sell-off and the effects thereof, you know, I think that gold can and probably will recover a lot of that traditional correlation structure. But, right. you know, gold has been a bit different. It's been, there's been days when the market is down and gold is down as well, which is unusual given history. And so for that, you know, we've, we've had to take that into consideration and adjust the correlation number that we allow to be fed into the optimization process. It's no longer the case at time T and going out to, you know, time T plus one to T plus 14, you know, we're thinking about days here that gold will be as an effect, as effective a negative or as effective an equity hedge as it was in the past. So that, that is being accounted for in our, in our modeling. Great. Uh, but it sounds like the risk return uh, considerations, even if the correlation has ticked up a little bit, completely overwhelming and hence the, the large position. Yeah. The, the process still likes everything it sees about gold, yeah. even including the correlation, you know, the, the less correlation reduction that gold is currently giving. Right. Great. Makes sense. I think that really helped me uh, understand the process a little bit better. Uh, I did want to circle back before we turn to the, the final uh, segment of the, the podcast. Uh, but I wanted to turn back to some of the comments that you're making about uh, gold as a, effectively an inflation hedge uh, with all the uh, printing and, and unprecedented stimulus Love to get your thoughts, uh, considering your background from the Fed, on what's going on uh, on both a, uh, I guess, monetary specifically, but uh, even a fiscal uh, stimulus uh, basis. You, you referenced the unprecedented nature. Sounds like you think that inflation might be coming because of it, um, but just love to get your overall view on it. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I do think that eventually there is going to be inflation from all of this. Uh, I think that, you know, before we see inflation in traditional government measures, you're going to see it in other areas. You know, it, it, food perhaps will be an area where you see inflation. That's a problematic area to see, see inflation. This obviously affects citizens greatly. Another area where I think you're going to see inflation perhaps is in uh, healthcare services. And so, you know, with uh, some of the destruction that has been wrought by the, the COVID shutdown, you know, a lot of outpatient services have been halted. And you can think about, you know, the, the anger and the health and human health costs to this. And so, you know, I think one of the things, and I'm sure this already exists, although I haven't done any, you know, wholesale research on it, uh, there's going to be stuff like, you know, a concierge 
health service where, you know, you pay more, you get more kind of stuff. Right. And so that would, that would represent an inflation in healthcare prices. And so I think those are two areas where you probably will see things sooner rather than later. Um, governments will fight this, of course. Uh, they, they want to keep those areas, uh, the prices down there because people are very sensitive to price increases there. But yeah, I mean, this we're in a world where, you know, the solutions to everything is just to print more money. That has to have ramifications. I, you know, I've been so, a lot of us that follow economics have been surprised that there haven't been, you know, this is a big puzzle in economics. You know, why hasn't there been inflation in you yeah. know, going back to, you know, what was done after uh, 2008, the global financial crisis. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I do think eventually, yes, there will be, uh, you know, the, I just talked, talked about the store of value function that money has to serve. Obviously, you know, with so much money out there, paper money out there, you know, that store of value function has been completely perverted. So yeah, I, I do think that that eventually will happen. Will happen. I, I don't know what the transmission mechanism is going to be. I don't know, you know, exactly where it's going to show up. But I mean, it, it has to come. I really do think so. That leads to an interesting uh, question that I have for you on on what you look for in um, in selling positions. So you, you've accumulated this large position in gold. Uh, you have a thesis that you've walked us through, which is great. Um, you know, investing is a very humbling uh, profession. Uh, you may be wrong. What do you look for uh, to test your your thesis? And then, how important is speed uh, when you're when you're looking at uh, making trades? Uh, I guess to get out of the way, or even to get into something. Well, uh, the speed is, is very important. Uh, I think you know you can make an argument that risk is almost instantaneously priced nowadays in the current state of financial markets. And so speed is is a necessity. One of the things I like to think exists with the McKenzie Diversified Alternative Fund process is we allow for speed. So we have always said that the minimum frequency that the that we will run this process, this allocation process is monthly. But we'll do it okay. whenever we think there is a need to do it. So anytime that you know there may be information for this process to take advantage of, we will run the entire process, which means forming the inputs, feeding the inputs into the optimization stage, and then running that op optimization stage. And so you know the ability to do that and respond to things changing day to day, I think is is it allows for speed and allows for speed to be built into the process. So speed is huge. Speed is huge. Now you asked about uh, you know selling. What do we do if things are were wrong about something? Well, I mean you know I can talk about what we did in March. So one of the things that happened with the McKenzie Diversified Alternatives Fund is you know some of our real estate exposure was in mortgage rates coming into February and March. And I don't know if listeners know this, but mortgage REITs has been one of the most affected areas of the equity markets. In March alone, you know, your, your standard U.S. mortgage REIT index in U.S. dollar terms was probably down over 50%, 50%. And so we wow. had some of that US, we, yeah, well, I was right. We had some of that US, we had some of that US mortgage read exposure coming into this this sell-off. We didn't have a lot, but any was still painful. 
And so, you know, very quickly, we started to sell this down because we started to downgrade the return to this space and the process, you know, reacting to that downgrade kept recommending less and less of mortgage REITs. And so that's an example of how we handle the selling process and the speed as well. I think it encapsulates both of those elements. And so at this point, you know, we're almost entirely out of mortgage REITs. So we still have a little, just a crumb. But um, we, we reacted quite, uh, quite quickly. And, you know, in case people don't know what's happening with mortgage REITs as a space. So real estate, you know, you have your traditional, what I like to call operating REITs. These are, you know, your Rio cans, et cetera. SL Green would be a name out of the U United States. So these are companies that own real estate and then rent out that real estate to earn, you know, business revenue, et cetera. Manage that, that real estate asset. That is what most of the real estate universe, at least the real estate equity universe, is comprised of. However, there is another side. So the other side of the real estate business, the outside of those operating REITs, there are mortgage REITs. So these are companies that are involved on the debt side of real estate. And so these would be companies that uh, originate commercial mortgages. They also trade in MBS, so mortgage-backed securities. And one of the things that caused mortgage REITs to be so affected by the COVID sell-off or what was happening, you know, public health-wise with COVID was, and you probably saw some of these news items, you saw, you know, well-known U.S. companies in this case I'll talk about saying that they may not be able to make their rent payments in March, April, what have you. You know, the Cheesecake Factory was a company that said this. I believe the US Subway, you know, the Subway, sub, the sandwich franchises, I think Subway right. said this to some degree. And so what happens is, you know, if a, a tenant can't make its rent, well, then, you know, the company that owns that building can't turn around and make their mortgage payment. So there's that pass through. And so mortgages were a serious area of worry. And so mortgages were being sold and therefore mortgage values were dropping. And one of the things that these mortgage REITs do, they, their business model is a lot like a bank's business model. So they, they borrow short to lend long and then they sprinkle in tons of leverage in order to you know, make money off that spread between short and long rates. And so with, when they borrow short, they have to post collateral and they, they post the collateral that they have, which are mortgages. Well, when mortgages are dropping in value, that collateral becomes more problematic for the lender. And so they're asking for more, more collateral. Same time that the collateral is dropping in value, the ability to get more funding to keep that business model operating was drying up. So the commercial paper right. market in the United States uh, froze up at some point in March, and the Fed actually had to inject liquidity to unstick it. And so it was a perfect storm for mortgage REITs. You know, their collateral was dropping in value. Banks were asking for more. And at the same time, they couldn't borrow more to keep things going because the commercial paper market had frozen up. And so this caused mortgage REITs to announce that they could default, and in some cases, some did default. And so investors fled this space wholesale, and that was why you had so much carnage. So we were a bit exposed to that in March, not a big exposure, but like I said, any exposure was painful. 
And so, you know, the process adaptable, you know, we kept downgrading the return, the future return to mortgage rates to the point where, you know, the process doesn't like mortgage rates at all. Well, like I said, it, it barely likes it. There's a small crumb. Got it. Well, Matt, thanks. Thanks so much for your insights uh, throughout this. It's been really informative. Um, we always end these podcasts with a segment on recommendations. Uh, so I'll throw out a, topic, a couple of topics and, and get your recommendations. Uh, how about your favorite books? My favorite books of all time? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Hard, hard to answer. Hard to answer. But, uh, you know, I, I do have one that I think people should read. I think people should pay attention to this. You know, I'm an American, so I've paid a lot of attention to this. So I'm going to recommend that listeners read The Ruling Class, How They Corrupted America, and What We Can Do About It. So this is written by a gentleman named Angelo Cotavilla. He is a uh, political thinker. I, I believe his training is probably in economics, although I could be wrong about that. But I'll, I'll, I'll just leave, leave the politi- political thinker descriptor out there. But I think it's very important given what the world is dealing with today. So, you know, one of the contentions in this book is that, you know, and I think you can make the same arg- argument that this has happened in other developed economies, not just the United States, but that the ruling class – the people that are running things, and he's talking about the United States, and it's not a partisan thing. You know, he he lumps Democrats and Republicans together, but the people in power in the United States, one of the things they've been doing for many decades, is basically selling the country out to China, and the Chinese Communist Party. You can think about all the manufacturing that was moved to China over the you know the last say four or five decades in the United States. Now, I've used this phrase before, now the bill for that is coming due. Here we've got a global pandemic. Here you have, you know, a situation where the production, a lot of the production of, you know, personal protective equipment, PPE, occurs in China. You have a situation where a lot of the active ingredients in important medicines, that production occurs in China. Basically, a lot of important supply chains exist in China. And you have a situation where you need those things in your country. And that production can be held captive by China and the Chinese Communist Party. He wrote about all of this happening, the ruling class doing this to America over the last four or five decades like I said, I think it's happened, you know, not just in America, although America is a good example of this. And so it's, it's, it's very, it's a very good read. This was written, I believe in 2010. So that just tells okay. you how, how, how brilliant Angelo is. I mean, think about all the things that he presaged in this book that have, you know, this presaged, you know, Trump, the rise of Trump and the Trump doctrine, this presaged, you know, the the negative effects of locating your supply chain outside of your country when it comes to national security items. So a very interesting read, very topical for what's going on right now today. Uh, I, yeah, a great book. So I'll mention that great. one. Perfect. Um, do you listen to any podcasts? 
I don't. I have to admit, I don't listen to podcasts. So I, I do. I do watch some stuff on Netflix with my wife. So I've got some recommendations there. Yeah, yeah. Give me, give me some uh, Netflix recommendations. All right. So one of, the, I think this is a very interesting show on Netflix. I hope I get the title right. I just watched it last week with uh, my wife Serena. Uh, it's called How to Fix a Drug Scandal. Have you seen this one? I haven't. No. No, haven't. Okay, so I, I can recommend this. So, this actually concerns yeah. Massachusetts, which is where I lived before I moved up here to Toronto, and I actually sure. remember the beginnings of this starting to break before I moved to Toronto. And I think uh, you know this is a very interesting watch. And again, you know, I'm I'm going to get a little political here. I, I think it also highlights something that is epidemic, I believe, in the United States, and that is prosecutorial misconduct. So you have this right. story, it's how to fix a drug scandal. What happened was, you know, the crime labs that test drug evidence in Massachusetts, there's two of them, they had workers that were uh, very corrupt. You had workers that weren't properly testing drug evidence. You had workers, no, I say workers, I don't mean to pluralize it. You had a worker that was improperly sure. testing drug evidence. You had a worker that was also high on drugs while testing drug evidence. And, you know, this was in the second case, actually a little bit in the first case, although they were more open in the first case, but in the second case where the worker was on drugs while doing this, this was covered up by prosecutors. And, you know, the cover up allowed people that were convicted based on those perhaps erroneous drug tests to remain in prison. Right. So, you know, completely disgusting. It speaks to a huge problem in the United States, which in my opinion is prosecutorial misconduct. Prosecutors and judges in the U.S. have a lot of power and a lot of power that they abuse. Great. I'll, I'll uh, check that out to get my outrage on. Um, That's a good one. <laughs> uh, yeah, good. Uh, last, last question for you. Uh, and it, I guess it's more of a life recommendation. But what are you most looking forward to when we finally uh, re-enter the normalcy of the world? Is it a I'm is it a eating out? Is it just shopping? What what are you most looking forward to? No, no, I'm most looking forward to my little girl Lara being able to go back to daycare and play with all her little pals. That's what I'm most looking Fair forward enough. to. <laughs> She's an only child. And so too much, too much adult time. I'd love for her to get back there and, you know, play with her, her friends. That makes sense. Well, Matt, uh, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you, Matt. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes, and Mackenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 